Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can everybody hear me? Yeah, good. People are nodding on the back row. Uh, my name is Carsten Sorensen. I'm from Department of Management from the Information Systems and Innovation Group, uh, where we study the intricate relationships between technology and everyday life and organizational practices. So, of course, it's a great pleasure uh, for the Department of Management to host this uh, book launch, I think we yes. call it. It's a book yes, launch. For, um, this evening with Clay Shirky, and the book is called Cognitive Surplus. There are copies available uh, for signing out in the foyer afterwards. And if you do us a big favor of just holding on, rushing out until we at least get the main person out there so he can sit ready <laughs> with his fountain pen. Uh, I know some of you might be academics who takes, uh, not takes lightly to being told what to do, but if we can just this once, <laughs> at least here at LSE, have, have a little bit of discipline in that respect, we'll, uh, it'll be greatly appreciated, at least for the ones who want the signature. Um, so uh, the running order of tonight is that we'll have a presentation of around three quarters of an hour uh, by Clay, then we'll have um, a discussion afterwards where you can ask questions. I've been instructed by somebody to tell you not to give speeches. So we don't need any thank you speeches in the audience, but preferably questions, preferably insightful ones that can really test, test his abilities as, an, uh, as a discussant here. Uh, and after that, there will be a book signing, and then there will be a, a, a bar. Unfortunately, it's a pay-as-you-go pay bar. But uh, those of you who brought, on, brought along cash, you can get a drink af afterwards. Um, so, I'm going to read from the jacket I haven't memorized it. So, Clay Shergi, he teaches the Interactive Telecommunications Program at uh, New York University, where he researches the interrelated effects of our social and technological networks. Uh, and he has, uh, of course, worked with a lot of corporations. He's been in all sorts of media. And I'm sure you'll, uh, you'll greatly enjoy his presentation now. Let's welcome Clay Shergi. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, I yeah. forgot one thing, sorry, you are being recorded as always in life, so if you say anything you regret, you will regret it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Carson. So, uh, yes, as you heard, um, I, uh, it's a book launch. Um, the, uh, I think the official publication date is uh, July 1. This is sadly the American covers. I don't have the, uh, an image of the UK cover yet. Um, it's smaller if you get it in the store, so no need to, no need to worry uh, about that. Um, uh, rather than talk about cognitive surplus in the abstract, I want to start with a story that I think will illustrate what it is, uh, what it is that phrase describes. And the story starts here. It starts uh, <clears throat> January of 2009, uh, January of last year. In Mangalore, in India, uh, a Hindu fundamentalist group named Sri Ram Sini went around attacking women uh, in pubs. Uh, they dragged women from the pubs, kicked them, slapped them. When men uh, intervened, they attacked the men as well. I'm not sure how well you can see that uh, image given the fluorescent lights up there. But this, uh, unsurprisingly, as, as is by now usual, this event was documented on camera phones. Uh, photos and videos of these attacks were uploaded, uh, widely shared, widely seen. Uh, and after the photos and videos spread, Sri Ram Sina issued a public statement. Pramod Mutalik, the, uh, the leader of Sri Ram Sina, issued a public statement saying, we attacked those women because they were not living up to our idea of Hindu womanhood. They were not being sufficiently chaste. They were not being sufficiently private. And our next attack will be on Valentine's Day. If you are a woman in the Mangalore province and we catch you out of doors with a man who is not your blood relative, we will attack you again. So this puts uh, the women of Mangalore in a classic collective action dilemma. 
they can stay home in order to avoid being attacked, but as the cumulative result of each of their individual decisions, uh, simply live up to Mutalik and Sri Ramsina's demands of them. Or they can hope that there will be safety in numbers and turn out, uh, but not having to make that calculation without knowing what the other women of Mangalore are doing. And that is obviously the kind of situation that often leads to the dismal Nash equilibrium of everyone staying home, even if that's not the optimal, uh, even if that's not the optimal outcome. Uh, there was, however, by January of last year, a third option, which was to solve collective, a collective action problem collectively, and that was the option taken, uh, undertaken by this woman, uh, Nisha Susan, a, uh, a journalist who, uh, who works in Mangalore. And she founded my, uh, my favorite Facebook group, the Association of Loose, Forward, and Pub-Going Women. <laughs> and uh, you can imagine, right, a popular, uh, a popular Facebook group. Thousands of people come in and join the Association of Loose, Forward, and Pub-Going Women. And their first action was to say, Happy Valentine's Day, Sri Ramsina, we're mailing you some pink underwear. And so they uh, would, had, would, would often describe Sri Ramsina as, as diaper wearers because they favored uh, a kind of khaki shorts that looked a little bit like diapers. So they decided they were going to upgrade their dainty underthings by mailing them pink uh, underwear instead, often with a message uh, addressed to Pramod Metallic scrawled across the back. So this had three immediate effects. The first, obviously, was that it, that it enraged uh, Sri Ramsina, and Mutalik came out and said, this, this is outrageous behavior on the part of these women. We're going to mail them sufficiently covering garments. Uh, they didn't actually do that. That's just what they said they were going to do. Uh, the second effect was on the women themselves, who realized that they could, by using these tools, come together and solve collective action dilemmas collectively. Uh, and the third effect, obviously, was on the Indian government, who became aware that there was a group of voters who cared about this issue uh, and, and were willing to take very, very public and, in a way, high-cost action. And so they arrested, uh, because of the attacks of January, they arrested Sri Ramsina and some of the other leaders of, of uh, Mutalik and some of the other leaders of Sri Ramsina on February 13th, thus keeping them in jail over Valentine's Day weekend. So there were no attacks last Valentine's Day, and critically, there were no attacks this Valentine's Day. So what Susan did was to pool the free time and effort that was available in the population. Uh, that had not been previously coordinated through management or the market and turn it, uh, turn it to this problem. Right? And that brings me to the idea of cognitive surplus. <clears throat> so that is that cognitive surplus is, in my telling, the resource Nisha Susan took advantage of. And it's made up of two things. Cognitive surplus is the free time and talents of the developed world. Right? We have well over a trillion hours a year cumulatively. <laughs> Uh, to donate or give to or participate in activities we like. Uh, but we've had that for a long time, right? Since the Second World War with rising educational attainment, uh, rising life expectancy, uh, and uh, a shift away from agrarian and laterally from industrial economics or economies, we've had this ballooning amount of free time. And yet in the 20th century, we didn't get effects like that. The second part of cognitive surplus the second half besides the free time, is having a medium that allows for, for coordinated action. Right? In the 20th century, professional media makers got very good at production, movies, television, so forth. Uh, as a result, we, the citizens, got very good at consumption. We got so good at it that we told ourselves a story. We said, people like to be couch potatoes. The reason we watch 25 hours of television a week, week in, week out for our entire lives, is that that's the activity we prefer to engage in. 
<clears throat> one of the big surprises when the internet came along was that it turns out when you provision people with a medium that lets them not just consume, but also produce and share, that they'll take advantage of all three of those activities. We still like to consume, we still do it, but increasingly we're seeing uses of the network that also rely on, on production uh, and on share. So how big is that cognitive surplus? How, how, how much of that can we take advantage of? As I ask myself this question relative to, to, to research for the book, I realize there's no easy metric, so I invented one. Uh, Wikipedia, our largest and most ancient example of, of collaborative public action, <clears throat> has taken cumulatively something like 100 million hours of thought to produce. Big number. Over 10 years, every page, every edit, every talk page has taken something like 100 million hours of time uh, to create Wikipedia. Now, our uh, most significant use of leisure time, use of free time, is television. And so if you take as a block, uh, imagine that block representing all the television watched uh, in the United States. It's 2 billion hours in the US alone every year. Expressed graphically, Wikipedia is there. That is the proportion of annual television watching time that has gone into Wikipedia in its entire 10-year history. Put another way, United States, in the United States, we spend a Wikipedia's worth of time every weekend just watching ads. Right? So this is an enormous, an enormous resource <coughs> where even tiny shifts in the direction of production and sharing can change things, right? So this is not a story of everybody turns off their television all the time and runs out in the fields of the internet and, and plays. This is a story of if even 1% of the people shift even 1% of their time doing that, you still get, you still get enormous effects. Right. And here's another example of the <coughs> possibilities inherent in that kind of network. Uh, this is a story from two years ago from from 2008. Uh, in the beginning of 2008, Kenya had just gone through a disputed presidential election, and there was an outbreak of ethnic violence. And uh, Oriakola, pictured here, uh, a lawyer living in Nairobi, was blogging about it on her blog, Kenyan Pundit, was talking about the violence. It was one of many places that the ethnic violence was being discussed. And then, as the violence began to escalate, the Kenyan government announced a media blackout. And suddenly, blogs like Okola's went from being a kind of nice place to discuss what was going on to being one of the only sites that news was getting through. So she began to solicit comments uh, and observations from people in the field who could see the violence that was showing up nowhere on the media. And she realized, I could do this 24 hours a day. I could write about violence in Kenya 24 hours a day and still not take in everything that my commenters were able to give me. If only there was some way to automate this process. <coughs> two programmers held up their hands in the comments and said, we could build that. And in 72 hours, they put together the first version of what became Ushahidi. Ushahidi, the name means uh, witness or testimony in Swahili. It's just a way of taking reports from the field, whether by email or via the web or SMS, aggregating them and putting them on a map. It's called crisis map. And what Akola was able to do with the programmers and with, with the Ushahidi platform was to take what the population knew as a whole, 
Right? People knew where the violence was because it was being done to them or because they witnessed it or heard about it. And turn it into a resource that people could see uh, and act on. This worked well enough in Kenya that the people who made it decided to turn it into a platform. It is now an open source project under the same name. Uh, it has since then been deployed in Mexico to track uh, episodes of electoral fraud. Uh, it's been used in Washington, D.C. to track snow removal, first world problems. Uh, it's been used <coughs> most famously in Haiti in the aftermath of the Port-au-Prince earthquake uh, to track both sources of, uh, sites of need and sources of help. Uh, and if you look at the map on the front page uh, of Yushahidi, you can see that it has gone from its East African origins to spread worldwide in multiple instantiations in less than three years. Right. Every donated at every level, programmer time donated, designer time donated, and of course, most importantly, the donations of the people taking time to, to, to call in the reports or offer the reports. What Oriacola did would not have been possible without digital technology. What Oriacola did would not have been possible without human generosity. Both of those things are true. Right? And what matters now, or what matters in situations like this, are the places where the new technologies are actually providing a conduit for the ancient human motivations. Right? This is something of a, uh, a, a change of belief for me, I was in the 90s uh, <coughs> something, of a technical something of a technological determinist. If I saw a situation to which new technology had been added and new effects began to happen, I said, aha, the technology caused the effects. But the more I looked at social situations, the more I realized that new tools like this simply provide new opportunities for motivations that were previously locked out of the system. And it is, it is the, the rise of an expressive medium that encapsulates those motivations, the motivations to be part of something, to feel a sense of membership, of generosity, of autonomy, of competence, that are driving, uh, that are driving this change. Yushahidi was simply a way that the cognitive surplus could be engaged, but the choice to engage it was actually about the humans involved, not, not just about the tools. And using the cognitive surplus, <clears throat> when we survey the current landscape, we can see an incredible outburst of uh, novel social, literary, artistic, and political creativity uh, of, of the highest, uh, highest order. Uh, we also see uh, lots and lots of lolcats. Um, lolcats are, as you see, cute pictures of cats made cuter with the, uh, with the addition of cute captions. And lolcats are certainly another example of the cognitive surplus, right? That, that the ability to participate and to share ends up with this stuff just as surely as it ends up with Ushahidi. Right? Uh, now, let us stipulate, as the lawyers say, uh, that lolcats are the stupidest possible creative act, right? <laughs> there, there are other candidates, but lolcats will do as a, as a general case. <clears throat> but here's the thing. The stupidest possible creative act is still a creative act. Right? There is a spectrum from mediocrity to excellence. And you can choose to go up or down that spectrum. And some people will never get away from mediocrity. But it is a spectrum. Right? The gap is between doing something and doing nothing. Right? And someone who's made even one lolcat has already crossed that gap. Right? And that's the surprise. Now, it's tempting to want Ushahidi and no lolcats. Right? But that's not the way media revolutions work. The freedom to experiment is the freedom to experiment full stop. 
And some of the experiments are world-changing in the way that we hope crisis mapping is, and some of the experiments are good to crack you up on your coffee break. But even that isn't much of a surprise because that's what always happens in media revolutions. Right? Even with the sacred printing press, right? we got erotic novels, first crack out of the box. Right? Aldous Minutius sets up in Venice, and here comes the smut. Right? Scientific journals took another 150 years right, before the Royal Society publishes the first edition of Philosophical Transactions, the first scientific journal in, uh, in English. Right? So this is indeed even in this, in this characteristic, this is, this is the normal case. So here's what's at stake. This is, a, uh, this is an image of an alchemist lab. I'm sorry for the fluorescence. It's a little dark. You can't see it. Uh, this is an image of an alchemist lab, and this is an image of a chemist's lab. Can you spot the difference? No, of course you can't. There is no difference, right? Alchemists and chemists had the same tools. They had the same braziers and vials and, uh, and scales, right? Alchemists and chemists had the same techniques. Alchemists and chemists were, in many cases, the same people. Many of the alchemists became chemists. So this wasn't a technological revolution. It was a cultural revolution. The thing that caused the, al the transition from alchemy to chemistry was this. In London, in, uh, in the middle of the 1600s, a group of natural philosophers, we would call them scientists, got together and they made a remarkable agreement. They agreed with one another that they would not believe anything that was not true. Now this is really hard, right? Because we are no good as a species at subjecting our own beliefs to the kind of withering scrutiny that would root out error. We do, however, have a related skill. We're very good at subjecting other people's beliefs to withering scrutiny. And so the agreement among the natural philosophers in the Invisible College was that they would publish their results and that no one would believe anyone else unless the experimental setup had been published and someone else could recreate it and see the results. Right? Their motto was nothing from words. Right? We will believe nothing from mere assertion if there is not experimental proof. So you have to hold both of those thoughts. The thing about media revolutions, you have to hold both of those thoughts in your mind at the same time. The scientific revolution would not have been possible without the printing press. The printing press did not cause the scientific revolution. Right? And, and the thing that fills in that gap is the thing that caused the scientific revolution was the cultural decisions of the people who decided to take the raw capabilities of the printing press and use it for something more than publishing erotic novels. Right? It was the attempt to use what the printing press enabled in terms of sharing and wrap it into cultural practices that made it matter. <coughs> so, I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk about the, the, the cultural shift to this, this, uh, to this attempt to, to wrap the current tools in the kind of behaviors that make that will make the internet mean something deep for the culture, not just uh, a fun way to change, you know, exchange email and, and, and crack each other up, but something that will actually, actually change society. And I want to do it by talking about both the tools and also the motivations, also social behaviors. So 
This uh, is a slide from a website called Patients Like Me. And patients like me aggregate sufferers of various diseases, typically chronic diseases, typically with only palliative care. And it gets those patients to provide an enormous amount of data about themselves. Right? So this is a 23-year-old uh, sufferer of depression who lives in Scotland. Uh, and as you can see here, she documents her mood. How bad is it? Frequently very bad. Uh, she tells, she says how low or high functioning she is, how much distress she is in, how serious her distress profile is, and so on. Right? She is part of a group of people, all of whom have been uh, put on the same drug. And enough people are now listing their dosage that patients like me can graph the overall distribution of the dosage for this drug. The pharmaceutical companies don't have this data. Patients like me does have this data. So that attempt to aggregate data, to use the surplus ability of these patients to participate, to create shared value that doesn't come from just having the data from any one patient, is similar to the attempt to wrap the raw capabilities of the printing press into the norms, uh, into the norms of scientific publishing. Now, Patients like me, interestingly, is a commercial operation. And it is curious to see people voluntarily contributing their data to a site that has also got money-making as one of its goals. <clears throat> and this, this complaint is, is, is often raised about participatory culture. It's called the digital sharecropping problem. Right. Why are people uploading photos and, and improving Yahoo share price? Why are people uploading videos and improving Google share price when those people are not getting paid? As bad as, uh, as, bad as those sites are, though, they are, they are not the worst offender on that score. For my money, the worst offender on that score is Lego, uh, who has tricked two generations of the world's children into assembling their products at home, saving millions of dollars not assembling them at the factory, and violating child labor laws to boot. Right. And put, put, put like that, it becomes immediately obvious. No, no, the kids are doing the Lego because they like it. Right? And that same explanation often applies to participatory sites, which is we're not used to seeing people participate in the media landscape uh, except, uh, except for financial gain. As Samuel Johnson said, nobody but a blockhead ever wrote but for money. Um, and yet, we are seeing the, the desire to participate, the social desire to participate with one another as a significant motivation, not just different from financial motivation, but separate than financial motivation. And by separate than, I mean that, it's the, that financial motivation and intrinsic motivation, the desire to, to, to work with one another uh, and do things together, is often incompatible with financial motivation. Now, it's one of the great ironies of our current era, or one of the great coincidences of our current era, and I think we'll never know whether it's uh, accidental or there was something deep going on. <clears throat> but even as participatory models like these are growing up, social science is increasingly telling us about the importance of intrinsic, uh, intrinsic motivations on the part of uh, on the part of human beings and the ways in which they are or are not incompatible. Uh, with what we're used to designing with financial motivations. So here is an example of that kind of research that I think illustrates 
some of the patients like me split between the commercial side of the house and the participatory side of the house. This is a slide from a paper published at the beginning of this year by uh, Yuri Nisi and Alfredo Rustaccini, two psychologists, who published a piece called A Fine is a Price in the Journal of Legal Studies <coughs> at the beginning of this decade. And Nisi and Rustaccini set out uh, to test what they called uh, the deterrence hypothesis. And the deterrence hypothesis is very simple. If you want someone to do less of something, add a fine or a punishment. And if you want someone to do more, more of something, take a punishment away. Commonsensical, straightforward, also largely untested. So Nizi and Rustaccini said, we're going to test that. So they observed 10 daycare centers in Haifa, Israel. And they observed those daycare centers at the moment of highest tension, which is pickup time. Right? At pickup time, the teachers who have been with your children all day would like you to come and get them at the appointed hour. Meanwhile, the parents, the caretakers, maybe running a little late and stuck at work, would like a little slack to pick their kids up late. So Nisi and Rustaccini started with the question, in these 10 daycare centers, how often do parents pick their kids up late? They divided the daycare centers into two groups. Uh, the white group is the control group, the black diamonds, the white square is the control group, the black diamonds are the experimental group. And in the period in which they were just observing these daycare centers, what they said is there's between 6 and 12 episodes of late pickup a week. So that's, they set that as the baseline. Then they went to the, uh, <coughs> they went to the daycare centers in the uh, experimental group. And they said, we're going to change that behavior as of right now. Right? We are adding a fine. If you pick your kid up more than 10 minutes late, 10 shekels, add it to your bill, no ifs, ands, or buts. And the minute they added the fine, the behavior in those daycare centers changed. Late pickups went up every week for the next four weeks, uh, topping out, as you can see it, triple the pre-fine average, and then fluctuating it between double and triple the pre-fine average for the rest of the duration of the fine. You can see what happened immediately. Right? The addition of the fine broke the culture. Right? The, the, the explanation of human behavior we inherited from the 20th century, the neoclassical explanation, is people are rational, self-maximizing actors. Uh, and in these daycare centers, in the absence of a contract, there were no constraints on people's behavior. Right? But in fact, what Nisi and Rustaccini showed is there were constraints on people's behavior. It's just that the constraints were social rather than contractual. And the other thing they showed. <clears throat> is that the social constraints were in many ways more generous or created a more generous situation than the contractual constraints. Because once they added the fund, they communicated to the parents that when you've paid your 10 shekels, the entirety of your duty to that school is discharged and you need feel no residue of, residue of worry or guilt on behalf of the teachers or the community as a whole. To which the parents quite reasonably said, 10 shekels to pick my kid up late. What could be bad? Right? <laughs> so they run this for 12 weeks. And then they say, OK, that was very interesting. Thank you very much. Fine is over. We're canceling the canceling fine, canceling the contract. And then something really interesting happens. Nothing changes. Right? <laughs> they remove the fine. So we have now contradicted both halves of the deterrence thesis. They remove the fine. And the culture that got broken stayed broken even in the absence of the thing that had created the original disturbance. Which says not merely that culture is incompatible, some kinds of culture are incompatible with some kinds of contractual relations. It also says 
the culture is homeostatic. And when it's disrupted, it is not automatically self-repairing. Right? So what research like this shows, often in the direction of showing what the disruptions are, is that human beings have intrinsic motivations, <coughs> which, which are often in the direction of communal attachment or engagement, which often do a better job of holding us together with one another than if we try to specify everything by contract. Right? This is a great challenge to many of the sort of motivational design assumptions made in the 20th century. It's also supported by an increasing body of, of behavioral economics literature and, critically, uh, has important ramifications for participatory media. Uh, which brings me back to patients like me. So, one of the interesting things about patients like me is that the patients are sharing a lot of data about themselves uh, in ways that are not just valuable to create an aggregate for being able to read uh, who's, who's being prescribed what medicines and what doses. It's not just a question of grabbing information because to get the patients to participate in patients like me, they also have to be convinced to violate every social norm we have around medical privacy. Do not tell anyone your diagnosis, especially if it's mental illness. Do not tell anyone your symptoms. Do not tell anyone what you are being prescribed. Do not tell anyone the dose. Right? And if every patient on patient like me lived up to those uh, those standards, those standard assumptions made around the healthcare system, the site would be inert. Nothing would happen. Right? And so patients like me has a privacy policy, as you would expect, and as they would have to, holding the data they do. And they say to their users, we will keep your data private uh, to the degree that that's, uh, that that's what you want. But by no accident, next to the privacy link on every page is another link to a page called their openness philosophy. And their openness philosophy says, notwithstanding our privacy policy, which we are both legally and ethically enjoined, we're going to try and convince you that sharing is good, and that if you take a step to share, and other people take that step with you, we can make the world a better place. Right? This is the, the openness philosophy is one of the most remarkable participatory documents I know. Because like the logic that, that the Invisible College surrounded the printing press with, uh, what, what patients like me is doing is saying, we are going to take on the current medical culture. We're not just going to treat this as a random exercise in data aggregation. We're actually going to try to change the way medical culture works. If all patients like me manages to do is make their own users feel better for having other patients suffering from the same things with whom they can compare notes. They will have failed. They have in mind nothing less than transforming medical research culture. Now, I can't say whether they'll succeed or fail. Right? I, I don't know. Uh, it, is, it is early days, and this is a big change they have set out for themselves. What I can say is that this is a change that is uh, that relies on technology but is principally about culture. It is about the idea of taking participatory norms and doing more than just cracking each other up with them, 
but actually using it to transform the way that something socially vital, in this case, medicine and treatment, is produced. Which brings me back to the lolcats. Uh, <clears throat> now, I like lolcats as much as the next guy. Um, I may actually like them even more uh, than the next guy. But I have a hard time looking into the future of the internet and envisioning a world where a user is forced to say to themselves, where, oh, where can I find a picture of a cute cat? Right? That strikes me as being a largely solved problem. <laughs> uh, up uh, in difficulty in the production mode of Lawcats is something like Wikipedia, which is much more aggressively collaborative uh, in, its, uh, in its construction. And for articles of really any significant interest to any population, however small, considerable argumentation and bargaining goes into creating and editing those articles. A lot more effort goes into creating Wikipedia uh, than, than, than simply to aggregating law documents. And then you have something like uh, Patients Like Me, which isn't just aggregating a lot of effort, <coughs> but is actually doing so in the teeth of the dominant culture, right? Is trying not just to create this kind of value, but is actually trying to shift the culture it's part of as a result of being part. So we have to label these ideas. We could call lolcats communal. Right? It is value created by the participants and enjoyed by the participants. It's lovely. It's nice that that, that kind of thing happens. And you can find this any place you like on the net, whether it's people who are interested in macrame or Big Brother or what have you a place there for them to find the people who share their interests and share things, share things with one another, talk together, make things together. But the communal value rarely escapes outside the group of participants. <coughs> then there's something like Wikipedia. We might label that public value. Public value is created by the participants but enjoyed, uh, enjoyed by society at large. Right? To the 98th percentile, Wikipedia uses are readers but not writers. The, the, uh, the encyclopedia is created by uh, 2%, only 2% of their total user base, which means that the amount of value that that 2% has created is, is enjoyed by a group, you know, 25, uh, 25 times as large, 50 times as large. Yeah. And then uh, patients like me, we might label civic value. Civic value is value created by the participants and enjoyed not just by the public users as Wikipedia. It's value created by the participants that actually transforms the culture it's embedded. Right. And the open question, uh, I think, for us, for our, uh, for our historical generation, is not how much of this we're going to get. Again, as I said, I think largely a solved problem. But rather, how much of that we're going to get? How much of the civic value we're going to get? <coughs> Dean Common, the uh, American uh, inventor and entrepreneur, once said, free cultures get what they celebrate that in a culture where people can commit their own resources uh, to the projects that they've decided to work on, those things that the culture is visibly seen to celebrate will attract disproportionate attention. Right? We have an opportunity uh, to, take, uh, to take this resource, to take our cumulative time and talents, uh, our cumulative free time and talents, now networked in a way that we can express them using participatory logic. And we can, we can, I think, rest assured that we will continue to get communal value. The open question for us is whether or not 
we can celebrate and support and drive and participate in enough of the sources of civic value. Because it is really, as it was with the printing press, it is really the conversation around civic value that will determine how much we get out of, out of the fact that we now have this cognitive surplus, which we can take advantage of. Thank you very much. Uh, there I'll end. Uh, and I think we have time for some questions. Excellent. Thank you ever so much. Thank Very you. stimulating. There were several laughs along the way, which always bodes well for, for a good, uh, good discussion afterwards. Um, I'm sure Clay's ready for anything you can throw at him of a verbal kind. <laughs> yes? yes, and just please wait for um, a microphone. So there's one on the way. And maybe just state your name and then your question. Here you go. Is the guy in the green shirt in the middle? Hi, uh, my name is Jimmy Greer. Um, my question is around consumption and the demise of the consumer, or Western uh -huh. consumer culture, yeah. and how much is all of this tied to the fact that no one's got any money anymore? You know, <laughs> the, the gradual, then sudden decline of the Western consumer, and yeah. now these big mobile com corporations are in Asia, they're in Brazil, making people consume and maybe not become part of a sort of collaborative culture. Right. Well, so those are those are those are uh, two different questions. I guess I'll I'll I'll, I'll take them in sort of forward order. Um, as 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 lovely as it would be to think that this stuff um, arises whenever there's an increase in free time, as there is when people lose their jobs, uh, that unfortunately the literature is now showing that there is some differential. And I didn't, you know, this this had not uh, not yet happened when I wrote the book. But in fact. Um, it is women, but not men, who, when they uh, get additional free time because of because of you know external shocks like uh, like the shock to the economy, use the network for more uh, uh, more outreach and more community uses. Um, men, alas, tend to sit home and watch more TV. Um, the uh, the uses of this stuff for men tend to correlate with positive or negative self, you know positive or negative feelings about themselves. So uh, we're seeing more of a gender differential in participation than, 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 than we were when we were doing this. In terms of consumption, uh, the great, <coughs> the, the, uh, and in particular your, your observation about third world consumption, about or developing world consumption, I should say, about whether or not uh, the desire to have uh, relatively quiescent consumers in the countries of the developed world is going to succeed. The great open question there is around the mobile phone, not uh, the personal computer. The phone is, uh, you know, the principal device of, of connectivity, you know, now worldwide, but especially, uh, especially in that part of the world. I think that a lot of that question uh, comes down to things like Ushahidi, right? Which is to say that that is an example of something invented in one context, in a Kenyan context, uh, that is spread worldwide, but where the uses in the developed world have typically been less active than the uses in the developing world, in part because in the developing world, Yushahidi is uh, providing infrastructure where, civic infrastructure where none existed before, as opposed to just, just uh, ameliorating it. If we wanted, I think, to uh, improve the likelihood that in, in the developing world, the participatory logic would increase. Um, 
and, and in fact, I see my students doing this, we would increasingly design services not just to assume web access or smartphone access, but also SMS access. Frankly, if there is a way to, any tool that there is a way to use using the simplest possible interface uh, increases the potential audience by an order of magnitude and, and order of magnitude here measured in the difference between hundreds of millions and billions. So that, that, the participatory devices are already in people's hands in the field. The developing world is, in fact, more enthusiastic users of uh, mobile telephony, obviously, than the, than, the, than the developed world is. And to the degree that that's anyone's goal, designing for, those, designing for inclusion of those tools is, uh, is, I think, the best counter we have to, to, to the threat of simply uh, rustling up a new, a new group of quiescent consumers. OK, there's one with the microphone on us. There's one in the middle, middle there, yeah? Uh, hi, Cla hi, Clay. It's William Perrin again. Uh, good to see you back in London. Oh, there you are. Hey, how are you? Oh, we're here. Very well. Good. You, very your well. voice has disappeared for a moment. No, no, I've, I've gone. I've gone. Um, I now run a business helping people create civic value through creating simple community websites. What we uh -huh. do, we turn up in a community, uh, we engage community activists, and we show them to use something as simple as WordPress.com or Ning.com. It's very, very simple tools because we often, in, in uh, auditoria like this, we often overlook the fact that the average person, the average civic activist has no awareness whatsoever that most of these tools exist. They have no awareness whatsoever of most forms of social media. But the thing I observe when we train people, um, you know, it takes an hour or so, not even that long, is that there is some simple microeconomics in there which, which you've got, you kind of skip past a bit, which is that it simply reduces to them the time cost of doing what they've always done. Mm -hmm. It reduces massively the cost of communicating in the community and actually uh, connecting and exchanging information. So is, is that something you cover in the book, or is, is this something you're, you know, you, you've not focused on? It is. No. I, you know, I, the, the, and, and in particular, one of the things I take on in the book is the old and, and in my mind, invidious philosophical distinction between is this a difference in degree or a difference in kind? Uh, one of the things, and I, I'm sure you will have seen this as well, people lining up to say, oh, well, you know, <coughs> Nothing new is happening now because people have always been able to communicate with one another, and this is, you know, this is just more of the same. Um, one of the things that, that, that persistently shows up in networks is that when you lower the cost of doing something uh, past a certain threshold, you actually get different kinds of effects, right? So that when the network lowers the costs of uh, organizing and participating, you suddenly get an ability to reach a much larger group, right? Certainly neither. Uh, neither of the opening stories, neither the Nisha Susan story nor the Ushahidi story could work without the very microeconomics you're, uh, you're, you're alluding to. Uh, one of the interesting things, though, that I've observed, I don't know if you, you, you've seen this, is that very often when you're introducing people to technology that lowers the cost of their behavior, you don't tell them two weeks from now you're going to wonder how you ever did without this because it's going to be so dramatically different from anything you're used to. Because people hate being told, this is really going to change the way you think. Right? That's one of people's least favorite things to hear. And so it's, it's very often easy to say, I'm just going to give you an easy way to do what you're already doing, and then let the amplification effect show up. But, but, uh, but yes, absolutely, the microeconomics you're, 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 you're noticing are that uh, are, you know, are, I think, are implicit here, and, 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 and I discussed them somewhat, which is that, that when you lower the cost of something in a network far enough, it starts exhibiting different kinds of behaviors than, than, than if the cost had been high. 
Okay, so we have one up in, in the, the green the green shirt in the middle there, and then we have the lady in the blue shirt afterwards, yeah. and then now the floodgates are opening on the front row. We'll yeah. uh, draw up. We need a microphone down here for later. Yeah? Hello, my name is Richard Smith, and I'm on the board of the Public Library of Science, and oh. we have in introduced all sorts of tools for people to comment on papers, yeah. in papers, discuss them, score them, with the idea that this kind of discussion will yeah. really add a lot of value and help us sort out what really matters from what doesn't matter, and somehow it just doesn't happen. Yep. Why doesn't it happen, and yep. what could we do to make it happen? <laughs> yep. So, brilliant uh, question. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, First uh, prize so uh, far. Great. Uh, so, so I, I will... So, particularly science has a reference community of people who are even capable of interpreting a given paper. Um, Alas, and, 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 and let me say, first of all, just as a citizen, thank you for PLOS. It is, uh, it is an amazing project. Um, as an academic, I will say that I think the principal problem is that the uh, incentives of academics are typically not only not aligned with the kind of public commentary that you're soliciting, but are, but are, are, are misaligned and sometimes even aligned against uh, the idea of that kind of participation. Uh, Nature tried something similar with uh, syndicating, uh, syndicating early comment. And as long as the, the tenure process relies on the <laughs> tenure committee assuming that the junior faculty should go through the same process the senior faculty went through, either out of a, a, a sense of hazing ritual or a misplaced uh, uh, connection to, to tradition, uh, it will be very difficult to get those kind of uh, those kind of, of comments. My guess is that let me make an analogy. In the United States, uh, early on, you know, in the beginning part of this decade, the two musicians who were making best use of the internet were Soldier Boy Tellum, who had a breakout hit on MySpace called "Crank That," that had that that got to be. Uh, a big national hit without the traditional music industry, and also David Bowie. And they were both the people who didn't need the traditional system. One because he'd never gotten in, and one because he was so secure uh, that on the other side, he could, he could tell the whole music industry to uh, buzz off. Uh, I think the academic situation is similar, which is to say there will be a handful of young Turks and there will be a handful of senior faculty uh, who share your goals, and everybody in the middle is caught in the tenure system. So in the same way that MIT pioneered open courseware, because what are people going to do? Tell MIT it can't do what it wants to do. You will probably have to do something more like active recruiting of the departments that are willing to say, if you vet PLOS articles, we will count that as points towards tenure. Or you go to the people clustered around those Wikipedia articles, often ABD doctoral students, uh, and say, we're recruiting you to participate in order to raise your, your visibility to your peers. But I am afraid for the moment that the core of the system, because it's so tied into tenure, is going to be almost impossible to move from the center. My guess is it's going to be from those two edges. Um, and let me just say also, um, if there's anything I can do to help, drop me a line. Because it's, this is, within the academy, this is the great problem right now. Yeah, right. So lady in the blue oh, yeah, top. Sorry. Yeah. 
Hello, I'm Julia Hobsbawm. I run a real-time networking organization called Editorial Intelligence, and a lot of what we do is open-sourced, as in we publish and we broadcast. But essentially, what we're noticing is that there is a huge appetite for intimacy, almost the reverse of what you're describing of large mass inter-internet communication. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an en a very interesting correlation, and I wondered what your observation is on that. In other words, I wonder whether there will be a mass offline network explosion as there has been you know the intimacy that I see my children create with their Facebook friends and the intimacy arguably that we all yeah. create in a faux way on Twitter and I also wondered very briefly whether you might want to comment about this um, paywall business in other words you've <laughs> talked a lot about no, but wonderful communal um, public <laughs> civic but yeah. what about the profit motive? So, so to the um, to the to the offline point, I think that that is I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, there are there are stories in the book. One one about a uh, in particular a political protest in Korea that actually involved mobilizing hundreds of thousands of people uh, who 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 occupied Cheonggye Cheong Park, which runs through the middle of Seoul for a month. So, uh, one of the things that I learned from my graduate students at at, at ITP was I, I came in and started teaching there about ten years ago. Um, and I brought the 90s with me in a bag, thinking it would be useful. And it got progressively less useful with each passing year. And one of the first things I had to take out of the 90s bag and throw away was the idea of cyberspace. Because when you're dealing with 25-year-olds, especially now, they don't regard the internet as an alternative to real life. They regard it as an augmentation of real life. And you see services like Meetup, which first, in a kind of organized way, tried to get people you know, away from their keyboards and interacting with one another. A uh, former student of mine, Dennis Crowley, has got a service called Dodge, or Foursquare. His first one was Dodgeball, called Foursquare now, uh, that also relies on this drive to turn out into the street. So the old notion that we would all end up as big, floaty video heads in a virtual world, you know, never, never getting together face to face, I think is, is gone and replaced, and I think you said it right at the beginning, because of real time. Because of increasingly, uh, our increasing ability to coordinate in real time, people are using these tools uh, to, arrange, uh, to arrange to meet one another face to face. So I think, that, I think that the hunger for intimacy is very real, and I think the offline piece is happening. Uh, I should say that I limited my stories in this book not to groups of friends happy to enjoy one another's, uh, you know, enjoy emotional intimacy in one another's company, but rather to things where there was some public manifestation of the work. So I don't, I don't mean this as a whole and complete accounting of the internet and its social effects, but rather those, those aspects that are made in public. Um, as for the paywall, um, you know, gosh, I, I think the one thing I could say, I, you know, my, my, um, my published views on this are fairly, uh, fairly, uh, they go back to 1996. So uh, one thing I'll say is if, if the economics of the Times paywall works out, then I am, I am publicly and spectacularly wrong. And there will be no way I can weasel out of that because I've been <laughs> so clear about that for 15 years that I, I've never given myself an ounce of wiggle room. So uh, I, I believe that the, uh, the damage to syndication and advertising revenue, the, uh, the advertising revenues and the logic of syndication done by a paywall uh, will be uh, will underperform relative to the Times hopes. But, but that's been my, my position for 15 years. 
Um, more recently, though, my concern is this. We care about newspapers in a way that's different than caring about whether the Virgin Megastar goes, goes bust on the high street, because newspapers inform the public. Right? They, they perform a critical public function. We don't care about newspapers because they inform their customers. Right? We always use the word public to discuss newspapers. And what, what the Times is signing up to do is to lock out the public and to, to prevent the kind of sharing that actually leads to a newspaper story changing the public consciousness. Right? They are talking about limiting exposure to a story to paying customers in much the same way that Virgin limits the enjoyment of its you know, CDs or what have you to paying customers. And to the degree that they succeed at that, they are actually less valuable to us. Newspapers have, have pulled off the hat trick over the years of being privately funded public goods. But if their choice now is between being privately funded and public goods, they're commercial enterprises. They can certainly go in the direction of private funding. But it will damage their, it will damage their function, the, the, the functions a democratic society relies on them for. Um, I think the last thing I'll say is for those of us who have been having this debate for 15 years now, the one thing that we're really looking forward to is that Murdoch, by making as much noise about it as he has, seems to have finally put forward a dispositive case, right? Which is to say, up until now, everybody has always had a kind of, oh yeah, but they didn't try X version of this, as if nothing has happened in history that would tell us whether or not paywalls are going to work. And I have a feeling whenever the paywall goes, I mean, it's soon now, isn't it? He's been making, making these noises for some time. Um, that whatever happens will at least be past this phase of the conversation. Uh, and uh, even if I'm wrong, even if there is a case for paywalls around general purpose newspapers that, 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 uh, that are you know, financially, uh, financially valuable in the way they want them to be, will at least know what the landscape is rather than just playing and replaying the conversation over. Yeah, so we have three people who have reached some sort of civic order as to who's going to have the microphone. Spontaneously, just yes, by themselves. It, I, love, I love when that happens. Yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Hi, my name is Alice Huang. Um, I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the public and civic and the differences in value each yeah. generate. Is yeah. one more valuable than the other? Well, you know, so... You, you want to? I want to argue both yes and no, which is to say, I want it. I want to have it both ways, right? I want to like lolcats without saying lolcats are as good as Wikipedia. So the I'm I'm right. I, I I have the kind of view about this, the sort of amiably simple-minded view you would expect an American to have, which is, <laughs> you know, freedom is good, right? And that's about the most complicated political thought we've ever really been able to to manage. Uh, <laughs> And our, our catalog of communicative freedoms in the states is freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly. Those are the three that are in our, in our Constitution, which we remember to write down. I cannot recommend that highly enough. Uh, it, it strikes me as being an almost wholly uncomplicated good to have freedom of the press and freedom of assembly extended to the much, much larger group that enjoy them in this environment than the previous environment. So that is, that is one thought. And then cross-cutting against that thought is uh, the kind of value created by Wikipedia does seem to me to be superior to the kind of value created by uh, lolcats. Uh, just, just looking at the utility of the two things side by side. Patients like me, Ushahidi, the, the Nisha Susan story, those are much more speculative because they are, I could not look at patients like me and say it's valuable superior to Wikipedia, even on its own terms. Because right now, Wikipedia is the number one source of medical 
information on the internet. So it's, it is outperforming patients like me, even for what patients like me means to do. Uh, what I will say is that in previous revolution, previous media revolutions, and again, especially hearkening to print because it was also the great democratizer of production as, 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 as this one is, it is the people who created new social norms around uh, the media that, that ended up transforming society. And so the, the, the question of civic transformation, so public transformation is, it is available for the public and if you remember the public and use it, you get that kind of value, right? Uh, and, and there's no real sense that you have to be a sort of a participant or anything like that. It's just, uh, you know, Wikipedia is just a freely available tool. Uh, civic value, on the other hand, says it's going to transform the culture you live in even if you never use patients like me, even if you never hear of patients like me. It's really, a, so in the same way, again, back the invisible cause parallel, in the same way that science made the modern world run the way it's run, even for people who are not scientists. The, the, the conversations of civic value around these tools seem to me to have that same characteristic, which is if people can really use the web to harness our kind of collaborative and collective intellect, they will end up changing life even for people who've never heard of the services. So that, that I, would, I, would, I would put that as the sort of communal public civic uh, distinction. Um, Catherine Howe, um, if, if, if we believe that um, the point of government is to gain additional civic value in society, and I think you might be able to debate that, um, is... We'll take um, it as read yeah, if that's yeah, the point Let's just assume yeah, yeah. it. Um, is, uh, do you think that there are necessary conditions that government can put in place in order to encourage this kind of activity? Yeah, yeah that's or, such a good question. Or, sorry, or um, do you think that actually the best thing they could do is just let it happen? Well, I, so I don't think the latter. Uh, because the, neither the let nor the it are as value neutral as that sentence is often used to mean. The, 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 the techies, of, of whom I am you know, a kind of a recovering techno-determinist, the techies would use that phrase. I recognize that phrase immediately. It could have come out of my mouth in the 90s. I was wrong. Um, the, the conditions for or against the formation of uh, social capital are very much within the government's remit. Uh, they are not, there is not a big dial in the basement that you can turn up or down, but you can do other kinds of things. Um, good policing turns out to be one of the things that creates social capital simply because people who are willing to turn out on the street interact face to face more often. Uh, for the network, the interesting and complicated question now is the question of the digital divide. The digital divide, as it was conceived of over the last you know, 12 to 15 years and, 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 and discussed, was a question of hardware, largely. Is there, is there not a modem in your house? Can you, can you not access the internet? On the assumption that once we show up with the pipe, right, the indoor plumbing is your, is your problem. Uh, what it turns out, I think, you know, un unsurprisingly in retrospect, but nevertheless sadly, is that provisioning the hardware turned out to be not as hard as people expected, right? The penetration rates in the developed world are, are, are you know, I think, I think every OECD country now has more than 50%, more than 50% use. Uh, but the participation, active use of participatory media correlates most strongly with educational attainment of the parents. Stop me if you've heard this story before. 
And so the, the participatory divide turns out to be more divide of permission than opportunity. Permission self, self-conceived. And I think uh, to the observation about training people for a few, uh, you know, for, for an hour on WordPress and having these kinds of positive effects, frankly, one of the things the government can do is simply get to get people in one way or another acclimated to the idea of making something and circulating it for, for feedback. And probably in environments that are tilted arbitrarily towards positive feedback, because God forbid somebody just throw something up on Reddit and see what happens. But you know, you, there are places where there are, there are respectful and contemplative cultures that are very you know, positive. But that, there, there is no easy solution to any class-based problem. But it seems to me that that great issue of what can we do to encourage people to take on the mental apparatus of the ability to participate rather than just the physical apparatus is now, uh, is now the issue before us. And, and not one, frankly, that we were expecting under the rubric of the digital divide conversation when we thought it was about hardware. At, at the risk of terrible mic-hogging, it would um, be interesting to hear what you said about democratic renewal in that context as well because actually changing your democratic representative processes is another segue into that. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's so complicated because, um, I, you know, we're, we're, we're all looking like this at the election. Like, it, you know, it took 50-some-odd thousand people for Labor or Conservative to get into, into Parliament, but 114,000 for Lib Dem. So it just, like, the, the, of, of all the places where the proportionality of the current system is, is, is maybe in need of some adjustment, the, the, the participatory model is not really the first place I'd start, which is to say they're just, you know. So electoral reform always gets tied up in local politics. I'm not sure how much, uh, at the retail level, down at the city level, that's, there does seem to be a lot of activity there. But at, at, at the level of the state, it's not, uh, it's not at the top of the list right now. After that small tea party, here we go. Hi, yes. uh, Henry Mason. <laughs> Just um, you've been quite optimistic with the output, participatory output. Yep. Um, is there not a danger? I mean, I don't know the, the group you referred to at the beginning uh, in India. Can they not use Facebook as well to organise? Sure, Sri Ramsina. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, aggressive movement. Interestingly. Uh, well, so this, this gets back again to American, uh, American political theory. One of our great, uh, in, in the course of writing down our Constitution, another ad for that, uh, one of our great political <laughs> theorists, James Madison, um, wrote a set of documents outlining to people why uh, the Constitution was being redesigned. Our first one was, was awful and we junked it. Um, and one of the things he said, which is quite interesting, was there is no, there's no way to get rid of faction. Right. Faction is the process by which government happens, rather than the thing government is trying to avoid. And government needs to be the place where faction contends. So what, what is obviously true in Mangalore is that, is that women outnumber any other possible group except people. Right? Just, that's, just that's the demographics. Uh, and anything that people agree on is not going to be a, a matter of political concern. So, um, what? So Sri Ramsita can certainly use Facebook to organize, but they will find, I think, uh, that their ability to project their vision of uh, a muscular and conservative Hindu fundamentalism, particularly casting that over all of the women that live in Mangalore province or potentially all of Hindu India, 
uh, is going to be severely restricted by encounter with the very cosmopolitans who will be, who will be taking them on. Um, that is not, however, universally the case, which is to say factual contention remains factual contention. Another story I tell um, also in reference to Julie's earlier uh, uh, observation about face-to-face -face, uh, meetings is uh, Zimner Shahari, my Arabic is terrible, it's I'm not, not really how you pronounce it, but it, is, uh, it means responsible citizens, this group of kids in Lahore who are using Facebook to turn out and clean market streets in order to try and improve social capital in Pakistan. Now, they may well lose. Right, which is to say the conditions in Pakistan may well make it impossible for that uh, attempt to create social capital to be, uh, to, to, to find the same fertile ground that, that Nisha Susan found. But the fact that they may fail doesn't strike me as a reason to back away from, from democratic politics, which is to say things that coordinate more loosely Things that provide coordination to more loosely connected groups strike me as being a healthy counterbalance to relatively smaller groups seizing the mechanisms of the state, even if those things fail. So I am, I am as you know, a net optimist, but I'm by no means a utopian. I don't believe that this stuff doesn't involve either trade-offs or downsides. Uh, but I do think that the, the availability of the tools, at the very least, makes it hard for a smaller, better organized group to overcome a larger, less well-organized group because what the network does is it provides a sort of positive supply-side shock to organization without needing the trappings of, uh, of, of management. Yeah, uh, there's one last question, unless somebody else is absolutely desperate. Where's one over here? This one down here. If somebody else uh, is very keen after, we'll allow one more, one up there. I think then we'll have to close. Otherwise, there'll be no time for alcoholic or non-alcoholic drinks. And uh, yes, I'm on one side of that divide but very strongly believe that we should have time for that. <laughs> hey, um, Emily here. Um, I was wondering, is there any potential for brands to kind of integrate themselves into these kind of ideas? Or would that upset the whole kind of philo philanthropic ethos? Sure. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, first of all, it's a general change, right? Which is to say, this is a change in the business environment because it's a change in the, in the, in the environment full stop. Right in the in the in the civic environment, full stop. Uh, that having been said, it seems to me that one of the problems that people inside brands have is believing that people outside brands care about brands. Um, the if you go, where's T? I'm going to say something insulting about the publishing industry. Maybe she's gone. Good. Um, uh, if you go to people in the publishing industry, they will swear to you that the public has a good sense of the difference between a book published by a random house and a book published by Little Brown. And you know, our eyes just glaze up, right? <laughs> so uh, there are a handful of cult brands in the United States, famously Apple and Harley Davidson are trotted out as, as, as these examples. But you know, who, who can tell? Who can tell what brand their TV, maybe it's LG or Samsung, I can't really remember. Uh, you, so, so in a way, the, the problem for brands is that brands used to stand in as a sigil of quality in an environment where information was hard to aggregate. And of all the things that don't describe the current environment, that would be just about top of my list. So if you go and you look at an Amazon page, Josh, Josh uh, Porter has a great, uh, great analysis of this at Picardo, his weblog. If you go look at an Amazon page, you will see 16 different places where the community intervenes. There's lists and there's lists and ratings and rankings and reviews. People who bought X also bought Y. 50% of the people on the page bought this and didn't buy that. And Amazon has now become a convening environment for the community to talk to itself about those products. 
And it is very difficult for anyone selling a product that is in any way competitive to get out in front of the information that the average consumer can now gather. So uh, to the degree that this stuff is seen as traditional marketing by novel means, my guess is it will underperform, not fail, but, 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 but underperform. And that uh, the, the real surprise for marketing communications generally is that uh, business, businesses are typically used to two modes of communication with the, with the, with the, the consumer. Either we're talking so you have to shut up now, which is called advertising, or <laughs> you're talking so we have to shut up now, which is called research. But the idea of being in an environment where different people are talking and listening at the same time flips them out. And I would say rather than you know, brand marketing via social means, I would look more at what does it mean the, that the people out there that you want to have buy your stuff are having a conversation with one another, and are there places where we can respectfully participate in that conversation? Participating meaning talking and listening at the same time. You often have to spell that out uh, inside, inside marketing and communications departments. That, that seems to me to be the big opportunity, and also for obvious reasons based on the, on the history of advertising in the 20th century, a hard one to grasp because it cu cuts so far culturally against the grain of the 30-second spot and so forth. Good. We have one last question at the back. And everybody's—it's a microphone. Hello. Hello. Sorry, I'm down here at the front. <laughs> oh, there you go. Hello. Hi. The, all the, we can hear is the yeah, crowd. So. The crowd has uh, uh, taken the power. I'm Ian. <laughs> I'm Ian from Think Public. Um, I. I'm interested that we've been fairly neutral in discussing what I see as the platforms that allow us to create this civic or, uh, or public value. And I think there's an argument that perhaps some of uh, tools like Facebook, while they've made it very, very simple for me to publish my pictures and my events, that I am sort of paying in, in the value of that data and such. And I'm interested if you've kind of looked at critiquing those platforms in some sense, or perhaps lessons we can learn when looking to build well, new forms yeah. of platforms. So the great, one of the great, uh, you know, this always happens when you write a book. A thing happens where you think, oh, I would have done that differently. Uh, and Facebook's recent, uh, recent adjustment of the privacy preferences, followed by its, uh, its altering of control, the control the user has over privacy. Uh, strikes me as being problematic in a way that I had not anticipated. So up until, literally up until I think last year, uh, the discipline of variety has, been, has, has existed for all of these platforms. And we have examples of users having figured out when they're being taken for a ride, right? So AOL, for example, America Online, uh, did incredibly well for itself with this whole group of volunteer labor who loved AOL and they loved being online, they loved helping other people, and they were just volunteers. And all they got for being volunteers was that during the time they were online, uh, AOL didn't charge them anything. Right? That was it. That was, that was what they got. And it was only when AOL started treating them like unpaid employees rather than like honored volunteers that they got angry and sued AOL. <laughs> so people's sensitivity to when the social bargain is good and when it is bad, as with an easy and Cheney research, is relatively high. And I believed, uh, up until this last Facebook episode, that that was a relatively universal disciplining phenomenon. Facebook seems to me to be unique in one way, which is to say, if it succeeds, and it, uh, on present evidence it will, at becoming the utility for the social graph, 
and for assertions of uh, continuous, at least pseudonymity, if not identity, then it may be that they can actually bend people's privacy preferences simply by resetting the defaults in the direction of increased uh, advertising value and decreased social value for their users without, without anyone being able to discipline them. Uh, Precisely because at half a billion users, it does not look like there is a. Con in fact, there is there is currently on the horizon no convincing alternative, and it does not look like the old story of Friendster gave way to MySpace gave way to Facebook has a fourth chapter that looks the same, uh, because uh, Facebook has been brilliant, uh, not not just strategically, but in terms of technical execution at making this work. So uh, the, the, I think, I guess to say, the thing I would have written, um, and the thing I'm you know, now write as a, as, a, as, a, as a post instead of as a chapter here, is that Facebook is unique in this case. I don't, I don't see another service that has that global utility coupled with undisciplinary, undisciplinable uh, relations to users' privacy. Um, Patients like me, where they just screw this up somehow, they could, they could, they could get sued, and they could, people could abandon them. But it's not clear to me that anybody can abandon Facebook and still consider themselves citizens of the 21st century. Right? There are a handful of no, seriously. I mean, it's I, I, look. I came, I came this close to pressing the button that said delete your Facebook account, but I thought I, I can't do it. There are simply too many URLs. I, I, I don't log in anymore. I don't, I don't answer friend requests. I never use the service. There are too many URLs that require me to be able to log in just to see the content, which I loathe. Right? That's, that, that is a development that, that, that distresses me enormously. But it's also true. And that, I think, is the, the since, since writing the book, that is, I think, the one thing I've seen, is that there is, in fact, a residual claimant of the social graph. Uh, and that gives them a freedom to be bad actors undisciplined by the threat of, of variety uh, that, is, that puts them in, 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 in a position that no other service on the internet uh, is in, which is, uh, which is alarming, uh, and it remains to be seen uh, whether or not those alternatives will arise or whether or not, you know, frankly, the, the, the court of last resort for those residual claimants is the government. Right? If I had to pick anything to predict in the next two years, assuming that no discipline of variety rearises, is that the German government and Facebook go head to head because they're the ones with the, the most aggressive privacy, uh, uh, privacy attitudes towards privacy and data retention vis-a-vis -vis their own users. Anyway, should not uh, keep us away from yeah, the booth. Will, oh, wait, will, we will you be happy to take it in private or? Yeah. yeah. Right. He has taken one for the team. Thank there you so much. I will uh, use an opportunity. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Thank you ever so much for everybody who showed up. It was a, a, and for all the discussion. Uh, thank you ever so much to Clay thank for coming here tonight. For uh, and please, could you at least most of you wait until we just get him out to sign the book, so. Uh, <laughs> So, so you don't have to wait for him. Thank you ever so much. Let's give him a big hand. Thank you. Thank you very much.